my big thing with getting help for my mental health was one, I realized if this got bad enough, then softball wouldn't be in the picture because I'd need to take care of myself. And I knew that in high school, softball was an outlet for me and an escape. Hey there, I'm Ashley Burkhart, owner of Ashley B Training, former D1 athlete, and professional athlete in the game of softball. I even spent a little bit of time coaching at the college level as well. But now I coach athletes and especially youth athletes. And I try to teach them the ways to become the very best versions of themselves. And I know that they can't do that without a support system that will do anything and everything to make sure their dreams and their goals happen for them. A lot of times I hear parents and coaches saying, hey, I'm just going to dish my athlete off to you. Hopefully you can figure out what her issue is. Here's the deal. That's not how we should coach. That's not how we should parent. And I can tell you right now, I'm not a parent, but your athlete is the most influenced by you. And I truly believe that you are one of the reasons why she plays the game. And I truly believe you are one of the reasons why she plays so hard. So if we can learn from some of the greats. I'm going to have some of the best softball players, some of the best softball players, parents, even my parents and my family are going to be on this podcast, sharing our journeys with you so that when the cleats do come off, you know what to say so that she can learn from her mistakes sooner so that she can become the best version of her. And that's what we want. We want our athletes to be able to thrive. And that's why we're here. So welcome to this podcast. This is going to get real. This is going to get deep. And I'm here to challenge your thinking. That's why I coach. I'm really excited for you to be here. And I can't wait to hear who else is going to be along this journey with us. Learning from some of the best. I'm going to be learning too. So whip out your notebook and let's head to the next episode. Hey friends, welcome back to season two. This is going to be our first interview of season two, and we're starting off with a bang. So the stigma of mental health needs to be addressed. Too many athletes right now are struggling with their own identity outside of the game. They're struggling with perfectionism, anxiety, depression in some cases. I had depression playing pro softball and didn't even know it until afterwards. I wasn't clinically told I had depression, but I look back at it now and it's very clear I had it. So mental health is one thing that's kind of hard to talk about, especially because I don't really know much about the psychology of the aspects of that. But I do have a guest this week that has endured all of those things that I listed above. She struggled with her identity. She had perfectionism to the max which caused anxiety and overall depression. She shared for the first time ever that she had suicidal thoughts her freshman year of high school. And those qualities that I listed above were part of the reason. So this week on the show, we have Mary Murray. Mary Murray is a three-time all-conference player for Arcadia. Incredible career at Arcadia. She also got to compete for British Columbia, and played against Team Canada, and has an incredible experience that she shares on this podcast of, of that awesome, awesome experience for her. And now she's actually coaching at Rowan University, 
alongside being the communications director for The Hidden Opponent. So if you don't know what The Hidden Opponent is, here's your little gist. Their mission is to be a nonprofit advocacy group who raises awareness for student-athlete mental health and addresses the stigma within sports culture and empower athletes around the world to face the hidden opponent, which in most cases is their mind. So as the communications director, she has a say in a lot of what you see on social media. If you go follow the hidden opponent, you'll see exactly what they're all about. It is one of the most important things in our sport is is now talking about these things because as athletes, a lot of times I remember even being told like, don't show emotion, don't cry. But in reality, you need to have emotion and feel your emotions. And so Mary this week is describing that stuff with us and and her incredible story. So I'm not going to lie. Her story of starting the game and pushing herself through the game, through injury, you're going to hear it all in this podcast episode with Mary. And her story is, is a long one, and it's a beautiful one. There's so much that she learned. She was a huge part of changing her team's culture, which we'll dive into a lot on this podcast as well. But Mary's a huge advocate for mental health, and I think we should start off season two with going in deep to all the vulnerable conversations, um, honesty, and man, this is a good one. And like I said, if you have ever had some sort of injury you've battled through, this is this is the episode for you as well. Um, so with that, <laughs> this is going to be a fun episode. I know you're going to love Mary. I literally found out about her by following The Hidden Opponent and getting to know Victoria Garrick, who actually started The Hidden Opponent. I didn't get to know her, but I saw what she was doing with The Hidden Opponent, and then I saw that there was a former softball athlete on staff, and her story is absolutely incredible. And I can't wait for you to hear and listen to Mary Murray's story. Welcome her to the show. Oh man, I'm so excited for this conversation. First of all, Whatever you're doing on social media, keep doing it because I found you literally on Instagram working for Victoria Garrick and The Hidden Opponent, which we will dive into that a little bit later. But I'm just so in awe of your story, the work that you're currently doing. And I think we should just kick off the show with you sharing your journey, your softball journey from from the beginning to the end. Take all the time you need. I'm anxious to hear this story. All right. Well... I started playing, I started out with baseball and t-ball because my town didn't have softball. Um, yeah. So I played t-ball until I was about, I want to say four or five. And then I switched over to softball. My parents constantly remind me that I was that kid in the outfield picking daisies. Um, <laughs> but I started pitching when I was, I think, eight. And then I started playing travel ball when I was nine or 10. Um, so I was on kind of like town travel, lower club teams until I was about 12. Like I loved my year on this team. We went to nationals in in Florida and played teams from all over the place. And, you know, little old New Jersey teams, nobody thinks that we're going to do anything. We lost every game in pool play. And then we go into bracket play against the number one seed and beat them. So it was like just a neat, you think back on those games and think, man, the game knows and the game can change any day, any given day. But um, I kind of hopped around a little bit to find the right um, fit. And then I ended up playing um, showcase ball for the same organization freshman year through senior year. 
I had my sights set on Division One. I, I was, you know, completely bent on going D1, D1, D1. And it took a lot of people kind of reining me in saying, okay, well, you're a homebody. You go to a high school that has one sport per season. You have 24 kids in your grad class, 300 kids K to 12. And you think you're going to a 60,000 person college and you think you're going to do well there? Let's think. So it took a couple of years for me to actually sit back and go, okay, you know what? Maybe D1 isn't what I want. I don't want it to be like a job for me. I want to be able to pursue other things. I want to be able to come home on the weekends and maybe I don't want to travel an entire weekend. I want to have that Sunday to myself. So I started going on a couple of visits. I had a school that I thought was perfect for me. Um, I was ready to verbal to it, I think, towards the end of my junior year. And then um, my current college or my former college coach now, she saw me at a, a clinic and then she ended up contacting me a lot. And I was like, oh, wow, she like really likes me. So I went to her <laughs> clinic. She knew my name as soon as I walked in the door. She came to wow. high school softball games, high school basketball games. She told me like how bad she wanted me. And then um, I ended up burbling to Arcadia University to play. And it was, I think it was maybe her second or third year as a head coach there. Um, so she didn't really have, we were her first true recruiting class that she got all of us. So we were the class that, and she said this, um, and we all know it, we helped flip the culture into um, what it was when we graduated and what it is today. So we went from having a team goal of being 500 my freshman year to winning our first, our program's first conference championship my junior year. Wow. So it was really neat to kind of, I look back and I have friends who were part of bigger D1 programs and that was a good experience for them. But for me, it felt really good knowing that I was an integral part of flipping a culture and creating a, a championship program. So I went to Arcadia, my freshman, mind you, Arcadia is 45 minutes from my house. Perfect. You would think freshman maybe year. Maybe not. Maybe not. I was like, oh my gosh, Keep going. I can't go home. I don't have <laughs> my parents. What do I do? I thought about dropping out. I thought about coming back home and doing county college. Like I was struggling. I was going home every weekend. And at one point, a lot of people who were close to me were saying to me, no, you can't come home this weekend. Like you need to stay up there. You need to get into a groove there. And when I thought about quitting, I reached out to a coach who I'm still very close with, um, who coached me in travel ball. And he said to me, you like, you've worked way too hard for this. Gave me a little bit of tough love and said, um, you need to give it a year season's so different. If you give it a year and then you don't want to play, then you quit, but at least go through season. And so I went through my freshman year and I, the thing I loved is there were no expectations for us because we were, everybody says that we were freshmen, we were rookies. Like we didn't mm -hmm. know how college softball works. So we went down to Florida my freshman year and I didn't start. And I had a really good preseason. Um, I felt really good going in and it was me and another freshman pitcher who ended up carrying the squad all four of our years. So I will never forget this, um, a pinch hit opportunity, but we had flown down to Florida. Our flight was delayed. We got our bags late. It was daylight savings. Our houses were an hour from the airport and an hour from the field. So we ended up getting in at like one 30 in the morning and we had to leave at like five for our games at eight. So we had no sleep. We were struggling. And we were tied against Susquehanna, or I think we were down by one or something like that. And she looks over at our dugout and she goes, MP, take some swings. And I go out with our GA and I was like, 
oh my god this is my first college event oh my god and i remember <laughs> i went out to the plate i took strike one and it was in my wheelhouse middle in and i looked down the third baseline and i was like that was my pitch why didn't i swing why didn't i swing and she just looked at me and was like all right you got it and i i don't remember what happened all i remember is swinging and running and seeing the ball go over the fence and I rounded second base and she was jumping up and down. And then I was like, wait, did that just, was my first college hit a home run? Did that just happen? That you kind of blacked out and didn't remember it either? <laughs> I just remember like seeing her jumping and screaming and everybody like tackled me at home plate. And I just remembered my cousin. Um, he's my godfather too. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He played baseball in college. And he always said to me, he like, kind of yelled at me for getting a 4-0 my first semester. And he was like, no, you got to start out with the expectations low. So you have room to like work. Mm -hmm. And I always look back and I'm like, oh, well, I did not start off my career on a low. I put those expectations high. Um, yes, you did. But freshman year was, was really good. So I actually, now that I can look back and I can see that I got hurt earlier than I thought, um, I hurt my hip probably three quarters of the way through my freshman season. Um, but I just pushed through it, played through it, didn't think it was anything serious. And we ended up going to conference playoffs. Messiah was ranked nationally at some point, I think in 2016. So I was a freshman in 2017. And I want to say in 2016, they were like national runners up for division three. So they were, they were a very good squad. We went 19 innings with them and I threw all 19 and we lost one, nothing on a pass ball wild pitch. Oh no. So I, I was, I mean, immature me was not happy. Wasn't talking to people after the game. And then I had to throw the next day too. Um, but freshman year was a really good learning experience, a good base. And myself and the other pitcher had to kind of get thrown into these situations so that the next three years we were like, Oh, we've been there. We're fine. So over that summer, I was getting ready to go to Australia and then um, I went to another hip doctor and actually found out that I had this condition called femoroacetabular impingement, which means the bones are supposed to be like a ball and socket and move like a light bulb and not be in contact. But mine, I had some bone kind of spurs. And so my bones were grinding against each other and grinding down and popping. And that tore wow. my labrum in my hip too. Oh no. So they said, you're going to need surgery. Um, and I said, okay, well, how long is the, the recovery? And they were like, minimum six months. Wow. And I was like, all right, so what's, what's, what are my options? I leave for Australia in a month. I'm going to be gone for four months. And then I come back and I start preseason in, in January. And so because division three doesn't have a red shirt, I explored taking, I think they call it a gray shirt or a medical waiver year. Um, mm -hmm. couldn't do that because I got hurt the year before. So they wouldn't let me. Then they said, you can either take yourself off the roster and save a year of eligibility, or you can play through it if you can take the pain, because you'll know if it gets worse and you'll be able to feel it and then you stop. So if you can take the pain, then you can play. And I said, all right, you know what? I'm playing. Let's go. So sophomore year was, Australia was a different experience, but softball wise was not a great year. I had many a tear shed because I was in pain. I was taking more painkillers than I probably should have to try and just get through games. And I was in the ice bath. I was doing stim. I was rolling out. My trainer was popping my hip out before every game to try and give me some relief. And then we ended up losing in the championship game of our conference to Messiah. 
Jeez. So I, I was emotional, obviously, because I was like, I just sacrificed all of this and we didn't win. And our senior class that year was great. I was really close with them and we couldn't do it for them. Um, and then I had surgery a week later. So I was in a hip brace, couldn't move past 90 degrees, had no range of motion for six weeks. And that, that was the hardest rehab I've ever had to do that. Like, and I had people telling me, Oh, pitchers don't come back from this. You want to be hundred percent, 12 months. You're not going to throw hundred percent. And of course, tack on to that, that I was leaving for London for another semester abroad. So oh, I wasn't going to have that intensive PT. Yeah. So, who was, who was saying that? Was it doctors saying that coaches? Like who was telling you that? It was both. Pitchers don't. So doctors were telling me, you're not going to be hundred percent pitching wise until 12 months. That's wow. the typical time frame. Jeez. And I was like, oh, well, 12 months is after my junior season. So we don't have time for 12 months. No. Um, and then I had kind of coaches telling me, like, I mean, people from all over just kind of planting those seeds of doubt saying, oh, are you really going to come back from this? Like, when I did a squat, I couldn't even, I couldn't, when I walked off my crutches, I couldn't even walk straight. So I was like, how am I, and this was my push-off leg for pitching. So it had to get extended and I had to get that range of motion back and that power back. So I I can, looking back, I can see why people kind of planted those seeds and were doubtful because it was a a kind of uncommon injury at the time. But now I've met tons of people who've had the surgery and for the sport, like I've never, the only other pitcher I've heard of having this injury is G Juarez. Oh, and I know she had the surgery too. Um, yeah, at Oklahoma. Yeah, she. I think she yeah. had it while she was at Arizona State. Um, mm. But I like, I was like, okay. And I saw the year that she had, and so I was like, she had a crazy good year when she came off the surgery. Like, mm. if she can do it, there's proof. You can do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, love that. I went to London, practiced over there, rehabbed over there. I was taking the tube, um, well, the underground, from my apartment into the city for like an hour just to get to PT sessions. And then I was taking the train for an hour, getting the softball twice a week. So Jeez. yeah, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for anything. Cause I made mm-hmm. incredible friends, incredible relationships with coaches. Then I came back from London, got cleared, went to run my run test, my junior year. We do a timed mile. So every semester you had to beat your time. Mm-hmm. So I think I was told that I needed to beat a 740 because that was what my best mile was after surgery. So I go to sprint it and I get halfway through and I just, my leg like isn't, isn't there anymore. (laughs) I start limping and I limped the last five laps or something. And I was like in tears and pain. And I was so confused. I was like, I'm cleared. I should be fine. What's going on. I went back and they said to me, um, you sprained your hip flexor. Nothing's torn. It's all okay, but you need to back off. You can't do any impact. You can't do running. You can't do like all this stuff, which I couldn't do the year before because we were salvaging it to be able to get me through games. Mm -hmm. So that was the second year in a row. I couldn't do conditioning with my team. I couldn't run my run test. I couldn't, you know, do go through that grind with my team and the guilt ate me alive. I felt horrible watching them condition and just being on the side doing abs or doing a bike workout on, on my own. It just, it killed me not to do it with them because I felt like that was such a 
important experience to bond us together for the grind of season. So we go into season and it was kind of like my freshman year part two, where everybody was like, you have a new hip. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. Let's just try and hope for the best. So I went out there with no expectations was just like, you know what? I'm not in pain for the first time in two years. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy the game. I'm just going to do my best. And that's all I can do. And I ended up, we won the conference that year. I ended up being named conference pitcher of the year. I had something like a 0.68 ERA. For Shut my up. It was, wow. it was like a fairy tale storybook, crazy, <laughs> insane. Yeah. And I got like all these accolades my junior year. And right after we won conference, right before we went to NCAAs for the first time in our program's history, it came up on my my time hop or whatever, that it was a year since surgery. And I was like, wow, all these people said 12 months and here we are. And here we are. Good (laughs) for you. Yeah, it was, it was a crazy journey. And then NCAAs were, I'll never forget it. First game, we had so much jitters. We were, we were at the number nine ranked team in the country's place. And we were like shaking in our boots. None of us knew how it worked. So we were kind of just, our coach said, you know what? Like embrace the the nerves because it's going to happen. So yeah. welcome them and we're going to get through them together. So we lost the first game on a squeeze, one nothing. We go into the second game. We are playing the number nine ranked team in the country and we beat them. Wow. Like 3-1. So we knocked them out on their own field. We work our way out of the loser's bracket and we go to play that team that we lost to. It rained for three days straight and we were warming up that morning. It was still raining and our site director came in and said that the NCAA called the regional. The other team was going and we had to go onto the field while it was raining and watch them get the regional championship trophy. Stop. Yeah. That was that was your junior year? Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Can we just talk about how many stuff. punches you've been thrown? Oh my gosh. We're only at your junior year. I can't wait to hear what's next. <laughs> yeah. So, jeez. I mean that like that sucked. It was horrible. And our senior class, I was super close with. Um, our shortstop later that year was named an All-American, and I was like, oh my god, we couldn't like, we couldn't even. It's not even that we lost. We didn't even have the chance to play it. Right. And that was what. And our coach tried to kind of have. Obviously, she was crying. We were all crying. We were worked up, and she said, you know what? You guys ended on a, a win. Not many people can say they ended their careers on a win, even though that probably doesn't help right now. But I know that our team came back with a fire my senior year. And we were like, you know what? We're not going to let that happen. Even yeah. if it rains, like we're going to do what we can and control what we can control so that that isn't taken out of our hands anymore. And we picked mottos every year. And our motto my senior year was leave no doubt because of what happened my junior year. So we all like embraced that so much. So that summer was when I played abroad. So I was like, you know what? And I kind of took it personal that I was first team all region had, I paid attention to my stats more than I should have after the fact of this season. And I was like, you know what? Like I have a chance of being an all American. And that was one of my goals throughout my four years. And I wasn't chosen as an All-American. And I took it personally. And I was like, you know what? I have one more shot at this. This is my year. I'm going to go out as an All-American. It's going to happen. And I worked my butt off that summer. I was going to the gym at 6 a.m. every day before my internship. And 
I played abroad twice and I was just trying to grow my knowledge of the game and get stronger, especially coming off of that surgery. So I went to Canada in the beginning of July and played for Great Britain there. And that I look back at that and it was one of possibly the best softball experiences of my life. Um, we played the Canadian junior national team. We played team Canada, like the same team Canada that won bronze at the Olympics mm-hmm. and to like be on first base and look over and see Jen Salling and see Danielle Laurie warming up in the bullpen. It was just like, no matter what happens right now, I'm competing with some of the best in the world. Yeah. And this is going to make me a better player. We played, it was, I think, a triple crown kind of all-star team with players like Sis Bates and Mia Davidson and a bunch of All-Americans from, you know, like Pac-12, SEC. Um, and I pitched that game. And, I mean, I got shelled. I won't lie. <laughs> and there was a, a really big moment of growth mentally for me that I'll never forget from that game. Um, I was I felt really good throwing, but really good for me probably was different playing some of the best in the world. So I was throwing like balls off the plate and they were hitting them to the fence. And I was, I, I would have gotten frustrated when I was younger, but I was like, all right, like I need to not try and strike people out. I need to just try and induce ground balls, spin the ball, move the ball so that they can't get solid contact, keep them off balance. I threw a drop curve to Mia Davidson in the other batter's box, maybe two inches off the ground. And she hit it over the right center fence. Shut up. And I was just like, like, what, what can you do? Like, you you did exactly what you're supposed to do. <laughs> I looked at our pitching coach, and I was like, "I it, what? Like, what? And she was like, she leads the NCAA in home runs. Just go to the next batter. It's okay. So she came be. up the next time, and I was like, you know what? If I can just find a way to get her out and not let her get on base, that's a win. And I threw her a changeup, and she flew out to center field, and you would have thought I won, like, the national championship or something. <laughs> And that was a moment where I was like, wow, like the little things, I love celebrating the little things. So that was a big one for me. I mean, we, we didn't, I think we maybe won one game while we were there, if that, but just the experience of competing on that level really forced me to grow and reevaluate where I was at. And then at the end of the summer, I went to Bulgaria and played in the women's European championships. So we won silver in that. We lost to the Spanish team. But of course, day one, I was warming up and I sprained my ankle pretty badly. It was black and blue for days on end. And of course, since I'm in another country, we didn't really know how to navigate the health insurance stuff. And I would have had to pay out of pocket to go to the emergency room or to a doctor. So I just kind of called home and I was like, if I put a brace on it and tape it and just get the swelling down, and I can deal with it. Can I play? And one of the doctors was like, yeah, you can. So I played the whole week with uh, an ankle the size of a softball. And I don't know how I did, but we got silver. And that, again, that was like such a great experience for me playing European players from all over. Um, We played an Israeli team. We played a Polish team. We played a team from uh, Denmark, Sweden, like all over. Um, so that was, that was a really neat experience. And as soon as I got home from there, I was off to senior year, but because I had played through that, that ankle, I was in a boot for the next two weeks. I was not allowed to run again. And 
looking back, I don't think I, I really made a good decision for my health overall. It was like my morale or my thought process was, okay, well, I just paid all this money to get to Bulgaria. I'm going to play. And then I came home and I was still struggling. Like I, it still hurts me to this day because wow, I think I made a, a bad decision to try and push back too quickly. So I couldn't run again in fall ball. Um, I played our fall play day and then we came back for preseason. We were looking really good. Everything was good. And I was fired up. We went to North Carolina at the end of February and I threw our game against Christopher Newport. They were number two in the country. And it was the same thing as when we played um, that one team in Canada, I was throwing the ball, hitting spots and they were hitting gappers to the fence, over the fence, finding Bermuda triangles on the field. And I was getting frustrated. And I think my, I'll call it an obsession, my obsession to kind of prove people wrong and say that, you know, I want to be an all American this year started getting worse and interfering with my performance because I, I was like, Oh my gosh, if I let up this many runs, then that means my ERA is here. And that means this is here. Can I recover from this during the season? Mm. And I started spiraling that way. And so after North Carolina, I came home, did some reevaluation and said, you know what? I'm not looking at numbers the rest of the season. I'm going off how I feel and I can't control that. And if that is what makes or breaks me being an all American, so be it. It's done. Move on. So I felt really good. We were about to host, um, we had a Thursday game on March 12th and we were leaving for Florida on that Saturday. So I think that Tuesday, our school made an announcement saying they were moving classes online because of the threat of COVID. So we thought nothing of it. We were like, all right, we're online for two weeks, whatever. Um, and then we got pulled into our locker room that Thursday morning our coach announced that our school made the decision to suspend our trip to Florida, which meant seniors didn't have their last Florida trip. We didn't have, we always did a senior hibachi dinner. We weren't going to have that. So we were obviously very emotional. Um, And then they said that the conference made the decision to suspend play for two weeks. So we were all very shocked, emotional, crying, all of it. But after that initial emotional roller coaster, we all kind of said, you know what? what are you guys planning to do for spring break? If you want to stay with us in our house, since you can't have access to your dorm and we want to do captain's practices while we wait until we start playing again. All right, let's go. So we were, we were getting hyped up and we were like, you know what? It's two weeks. We can still play conference. We can still defend our ring. So we were in good spirits. We went out to play that game that night. Um, We were playing misericordia. I started at third, the first game. We thought everything was fine. Nothing was different. We just knew that this would be the last time we played in two weeks. Between games, RAD came up and talked to our coach. And then I I saw a couple of my other seniors crying. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. And as soon as our coach read the starting lineup and started all the seniors, we all lost it because we knew that was it. Oh, no. And I had to pitch. Oh, no. Yeah. So that was one of the hardest moments of my life on the field. I did have my best friend at third base and we were crying together and I'm trying to warm up as I'm bawling my eyes out. This was a a chilling moment for me 
Um, and I put this in my, my THO blog that I did for them talking about this experience. Um, my pitching song or my walkout pitching was home by machine gun Kelly. And I picked that the year that I was playing injured my sophomore year and kept it ever since because the lyrics kind of said like home, the place where you belong. It talked a lot about resilience and kind of fighting through struggles. And it really spoke to me. And as soon as I heard that song turn on, I lost it. I was gone. I'm getting emotional right, <laughs> right now thinking about that. And I think the thing for me that I take away from that now is, yeah, it was hard, but I completely did not care about winning during that moment. I was like, you know what? If somebody's struggling on the field, I'm going to try and crack a joke. If we have a freshman at shortstop, I want to try and leave my legacy on this field and a positive impact on her. So I, I didn't care about winning. I didn't care about how I performed. I didn't care about any of it. I just cared that I had fun with my teammates that last game. We lost. I had 10 strikeouts, but again, didn't care. I matched like a career high. I had no clue until months later. And then we get, went out in the left field and nobody could even speak. We were just bawling. Our coach couldn't speak at all. She used to do this thing when we were in NCAAs the year before before every game, she would say, I love you guys. And that game, she almost cried saying, I love you guys endlessly. And we all just stayed out in left field together, like clutching each other, bawling our eyes out, couldn't fathom anything. Um, she talked about, she tried, I mean, none of us could speak because we were just so emotional. We went over the impact that our class had on the program. And at that point, we didn't know whether a fifth year was a feasible thing. So we were all, we all thought it was the end. Um, a couple of days later, as we all went home and went into quarantine and lockdown, when things started, we learned that we had a fifth year option. So as I'm finishing my thesis, which is up in flames now because of COVID. And as I'm finishing my senior year, I made the decision to enter the transfer portal because I tried everything in Arcadia and I couldn't get my master's there because they didn't have what I wanted. So I'm in the transfer portal trying to figure out where I'm going, trying to figure out, is this what I want to do? Do I want to play my fifth year and be a grad transfer somewhere else? Am I going to be able to juggle grad transferring and possibly GAing? Because that's at the time what I wanted to do was work in athletic communications. So I went through the summer, um, didn't really know where I was going, was talking to a lot of coaches, trying to figure out what I wanted. And because I had matured, I realized I needed to be and stay in that division three environment. If I wanted to GA, if I wanted to start building my professional career, pursue a master's and play. So I ended up um, choosing a school in New Jersey that I was going to play at. Um, and then I think mid August, they held a town hall and I just wasn't really comfortable with what they were saying about COVID protocols and stuff. And I made the decision to withdraw and I had been accepted to Johns Hopkins for grad school in January and me defining myself as an athlete and not a student athlete said, Oh, I think they made a mistake. Like I'm not that smart. I'm not, I'm not Hopkins material. Um, so I kind of had a moment of reflection, talked to a lot of mentors of mine that I, I value their opinions and I withdrew from that other school and enrolled in Hopkins. So I forfeited my fifth year. I said, you know what? I already struggle enough with defining myself outside of my identity as an athlete. So maybe this is kind of 
a way that the universe and, you know, God's telling me you need to back off. You need to let it go. And you need to explore other things because there are other things that you're going to be good at, not just softball. Mm -hmm. So I back, that was an incredibly difficult decision for me, but I backed off and for that whole year, I was like, did I make a mistake? Like, did I make a wrong decision? But, um, someone who I know and I'm very close to actually coached at, um, Rowan university in New Jersey, which is 20 minutes from me. And he said to me, all right, well, if you're not taking your fifth year, do you want to be on staff with us and be a volunteer assistant? And I was like, um, yes, (laughs) I would love that. So I helped out with practices. I was there a lot because I I loved it and went through the year. It was a little tough seeing senior days and Oh yeah. That that first day that I wasn't on the field when they played, I was like, Hmm, this is, this is weird. This is very weird. (laughs) But, um, went through the season and I absolutely loved it. And I started thinking, wow, maybe this is, maybe this is the path I want to go down and I don't have to have my life all figured out. I don't have to know what I want to do for the rest of my life. I can change courses. So, um, things ended up working out so that I was hired as the full-time assistant at Rowan in July. So, I was just about to congratulate you. That's so awesome. (laughs) Thank you. That's so cool. Wow. Wow. That's so exciting. Yeah. And now you're here. Now you're coaching. Now you're figuring out your identity aside from the game, but you're also still in the game. And you're on the leadership team for THO, the hidden opponent, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's your role? Like specifically, what's it called? Uh, Communications director. Communications director. That's epic. Cool. Well, can we just say I have like 45 different directions I want this conversation (laughs) to go after your story. But one thing, the first thing that really stood out to me was when you talked about changing the, the culture at your college. Like, I think that's, it's kind of what everybody wants. Everybody Mm -hmm. wants good culture, but they don't exactly know how to change it. And your, you know, from the beginning to the end, like your team grew significantly you're playing in postseason you're competing you're winning conference championships like can you guide me through how you feel like that culture did change while you were there yeah and I can look back like a thing I've realized now being in different college softball environments is there's no one exact way to change a culture positively and we kind of started where we were at and other other programs may need to shift in different directions to change their culture for a positive way but we needed a lot of accountability. We needed mm. people to buy into the fact that we were going to compete for conference championships and win conference championships. Mm-hmm. We needed people to buy into the fact that, okay, like, yeah, lift is optional outside of this, but if we want to win a conference championship, we're lifting all fall, even outside of our four week season, we're going to practices together. We're getting our reps outside of when it, when our seasons were so that we can compete. So a lot of our culture change was brought on by kind of captains and leaders on the team where we had to build an environment and it was, it was hard. Like changing a culture is hard stuff and it takes a long time to see those, those fruits come to fruition. Mm -hmm. But we, we had to be okay with calling each other out. And that was our, our big part of our culture was if you don't show up to lift or if you're late and you're not willing to fess up to it, we're going to call you out and hold you accountable because it's part of our team standards that you're on time. You're 15 minutes early. If you're not early, you're late. The classic saying. So we had to get, like, I had to call people out and I've, I was called out. I missed a lift one time my sophomore year and I had to do a, 
a bike workout. That was kind of our punishment was either a run or a bike workout. I won't say punishment. I'll say that was our way of holding each other accountable. Mm -hmm. So it was, we knew if we weren't on time, we were running a mile. If we skipped a class, we were running a mile. If we weren't wearing the right thing to practice, there was going to be some sort of a consequence for not upholding that the standards that we'd kind of sat down as a team and said, look, this is what we're doing. And if you don't live up to this, then here are the consequences. And the thing was, we set those standards as a team. So when we picked a team GPA, we all hashed it out because we had some bio majors who wanted to be PTs. And we had some, you know, me, a liberal arts major that maybe my classes weren't as hard as theirs. I mean, it was still hard, but I wasn't having to memorize every function of the human body. (laughs) So we kind of hashed it out and picked a GPA and then that mandated whether you were in or out of study hall and stuff like that. So we had a lot of the freedom to create those boundaries and those standards, which I think helped us in holding each other accountable because we're the ones who made it. So that was like our, our big thing. And then our junior year, if you ask anybody on our team um, why we won a conference championship, it was because everybody on that team was selfless and everybody embodied that word. Our theme for that year was row the boat. So it had to do with we're looking back and we're not seeing where we're going, but we're building off of where we were. We all need to be in sync. We all need to be on the same page to be able to power forward as powerfully and as successfully as we can. Um, So we bought into that completely. We got an oar from somewhere and started writing on it and writing all of our sayings on it and took it to every game. We had a little wooden paddle boat that we put on the dugout. Like (laughs) it was a a whole thing. But um, I think the selfless one thing that stood out to me was something happened on our team during conference championships and um, the lineup had to be changed. And so it was when I came off being, I was just named conference pitcher of the year. So I was so excited to get into the circle and show people why I was named conference pitcher of the year. And the whole thing that had been in my mind when I was going through my hip rehab was, you know what, this is going to be worth it when we dogpile out there and we win a ring and I'm the one who threw that pitch. So I, I just kept that in my brain for the, all those months. Um, I ended up having to play third base. Well, I say having to, but I was a third baseman too, but I had to play third base for the entire conference um, tournament. I did not throw a single pitch. And for me, it was like in my brain, it was hard to, to salvage that, but I had other teammates who were third baseman as well. And their name wasn't called never once did they give any sort of animosity towards me. I had one of them actually come up to me and say to me, you know what? You beat me out. We challenged each other during preseason and we challenged each other at practice. You beat me out. You deserve to start and I'm going to support you. Wow. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, that's a really good teammate. And I, I'll never forget her saying that. Wow. When we had that dog pile, I didn't care that I wasn't the one who didn't throw. Mm-hmm. I didn't. We won. That's all that mattered. Yeah. And that was the whole that was kind of the tail end of us finally getting over that hump of switching the culture was we were all bought in and we understood that, yeah, I'm going to push you at practice and I'm going to challenge you. But starting nine, once they're named, we support you. And we're, we played a role in making you better so that we could succeed as a team. And once that clicked with us, it was like, whoa, there was, there was no stopping us. 
Hey, I hope you're loving this interview with Mary Murray. I am obsessed with her story. I'm learning so much. I just want to stop in here real quick in the middle of this interview to let you know that all of those reviews that you're writing on Apple Podcasts, I am seeing every single one and I am in awe of you. It really keeps me going, you know, on the hard days to be able to see how much this podcast is really impacting you and your family. And I just want to say thank you so much to everybody who's reviewed the podcast. I'm actually going to do a little shout out. So this shout out comes from Bren82001 and it's called So Good. She writes, this podcast has become a family favorite. Listening to it helps my daughter feel stronger in her mental game and it has opened my eyes to the things I never thought about when softball was concerned. We seriously can't get enough and are always excited when a new podcast comes out. If you have a daughter who loves the game of softball, you must check it out. Thank you so much, Bren82001. It really means the world to me to be able to see this, especially coming into a new season with new interviews and new exciting topics. I would love to know what it is that you want to listen to. I want to know what your daughter needs. I want to know what you need to be able to become the best version of you, no matter if you're an athlete, a parent, or a coach. That is the mission of this podcast. It's about what can you do outside the white lines to be able to grow your mental game, grow your confidence, grow your physical skills. These and this podcast is supposed to give you the tools to be able to succeed. And seeing reviews like this, seeing other reviews, I see them all. Thank you so much for spending a a minute or maybe 30 seconds writing this beautiful review. I am so in awe of you. I am so grateful for you and thank you. In order to help this podcast grow, every review, it actually helps boost the ratings. It helps boost the amount of people that can see or find this podcast. So I'm so grateful for people like Bren82001 and everybody else who has also left a review. So if you want to help this podcast grow, especially with season two, so we can help get some really, really great guests on the show. We've had some amazing ones and we can hopefully get Jenny Finch on here one day. So if you want to help get some elite, elite people, more elite people on this podcast, leave a review. Um, Even if it's just a five stars and you don't want to write anything, that's fine. But leave a review and share this with a buddy, share this with a friend. If this conversation is truly helping you think outside the box or think differently, and it's changing your perspective of the game, my challenge to you is either write a review or just share it with one person who you feel like it can help. It truly can. And it's not only going to help them, but it will help me be able to grow this podcast and get this message that hopefully you enjoy out there. All right, let's head back to this episode with Mary Murray. Wow. Okay. That's so huge. So when you said that your goal, or it's not even a goal, but it's something that you see in the future that, that you're working towards, it's being in the dog pile, throwing that pitch. You know, a lot of athletes right now, they have this goal to play D1 or they want to be the ace pitcher on their team or whatever it is. And they have that in their sights. But once things change and like it doesn't go exactly as planned, a lot of players, they shut down and they say, well, if I don't do it, then who am I here? But the, the word selfless was the answer. Like you said, okay, well, I'm not throwing the pitch. But now because of that selfless teammate that reminded you that, hey, you earned this spot. You're, you start to forget that you're not on the mound. You're actually where you need to be right now to win the conference championship. 
Yeah. Because who knows what what would have happened if you were on the mound and somebody else is at third. Like, you know, like just the game, it's it's never going to go exactly as planned. Yeah. But as long as you have the vision and you're able to pivot, <laughs> friends episode, pivot mm-hmm. when things don't go exactly the way you planned it, like that's how you could still get there. Just the route might be a little different and we have to know how to adapt to it. Um, yeah. Okay. So you talked about those team meetings. Were your coaches there to facilitate in the meeting? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So it kind of depended. Um, And if she was, she was very, I don't want to say hands off because I don't think that's the right way to phrase it, but our captains played an integral role in the accountability process. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the times they were the ones calling people out. And then if coach had to call people out, then you knew there was a bigger issue. And she, she typically wouldn't get involved unless people weren't responding to our captains. Um, yeah. Then there was a bigger issue there. So she kind of, and I, looking back, like I liked that. I liked yeah. that we hashed things out and we did it together because at the, if somebody called me out, if we were immature, then we'd get mad at them and go talk behind their back. But that's toxic to a team and that's going to ruin the culture that you're trying to build. Yeah. So we, we had to sit down and have hard conversations with people. And there were days that we asked coach to leave practice and we all sat there and, and hashed it out and said, all right, what's your issue? Like what's going on? Get it out so that we can talk about it. And if I need to change somehow, like if I can't approach you the way that I approach somebody else, I need to know that. So tell me. And we had, we had hard conversations and I think having the freedom to have that within our team and without our coach made us that closer and had that bond that much stronger because mm-hmm. we were doing it ourselves. There was no facilitating. It was us going and seeking out someone else and having those yeah. tough conversations. That's huge. That's why I wanted to clarify because I think when you have the ownership of creating the standards, of holding each other accountable, when things don't go well, you have to blame yourself. Yeah. You have to say, how could I have been better? And, like, it's not your coach saying you should have been better by doing this. It's because it hits different when you are in charge of that. Yeah. And not just you. The the team takes ownership of that. It makes you hold even yourself accountable a little bit more, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. The way I'm looking at it as an outsider, it's like I think a lot of you winning the conference championship had to do with that. Yep. Yeah. Kudos to your coach <laughs> for letting you – not run your the ship, but be able to – she's clearly running the ship, but she's allowing the crew members – I don't know why I have this ship analogy in my brain. <laughs> Row the boat. Row the boat. Let's go. <laughs> uh, but allowing you to just grab and choose your own destiny. Like, yeah. that's that's how I'm seeing this. And I think that's something that whether you're a player, coach, parent, like, that's big. And I think a thing for me is I'm – now I'm two years out, going on two years out of the program. I can say that now. If you yeah. had asked me in the program, I would have been like, well, why is she never involved? Why is she not getting involved in that? Like, we got frustrated with how she wouldn't get involved in some of those conversations. Yeah. And we felt like it was just us going at each other sometimes. But now looking back as an outsider, I can say, you know what? That was really beneficial for us because we needed to get it all out on our own. Yeah. For sure. Wow. That's so cool. I think anybody can say and look back and be like, yeah, I didn't know at the time that this was a thing. But then as you mature, as you grow older, you can look back at it and say, well, 
<laughs> there was a rhyme or reason. We didn't know it then, but here we are. So you talked a lot about, geez, you had like, what, 75 injuries while you played? <laughs> about that. I know you, you talk a lot about mental health, and you even shared with me before we, we started the interview that even in high school you were feeling a little bit of anxiety and, and some maybe depression then, but maybe you realized it was mental health after all of this, the injuries and the, the punches to the gut, literally having your season end your junior year and then the stuff that happened during COVID. It's just so many punches to the gut. How did that one maybe fuel you or help you realize that that was a thing, that mental health was a thing you were struggling with? What was the fuel for you to understand that that was an issue when it was? Yeah. And how did you overcome it? I started my mental health journey. Well, I mean, I knew I started my mental health journey my freshman year of high school when, Mm. I mean, I'll be honest and I'll be vulnerable here because and I've said to people, vulnerability is strength in this sense, and we need to destigmatize things. I was verbalizing suicidal thoughts my freshman year of high school. I did not know what to do. I had no clue what was going on. And that was my big red flag of, whoa, I need help. I need to figure this out. I need to talk to a counselor. I need to see if medication is something that'll help me. So I went to a counselor and I have been to a counselor all four years of high school. I was on medication and I went back on medication because of how the COVID stuff affected me. But I think my big thing with getting help for my mental health was one, I realized if this got bad enough, then softball wouldn't be in the picture because I'd need to take care of myself. And I knew that in high school, softball was an outlet for me and an escape. So I knew I needed that in my life. So I knew that I, it was kind of a little bit of tough love on myself saying, all right, if, if you want to have softball, you need to take care of you. Mm. So I started understanding that. And then I got to college and I realized, oh, I have practice six days a week. Maybe this isn't going to be an escape for me. And I had to find other things that were kind of my escape. But I think, and I, I tell this to a lot of people, I think as athletes, we can see mental health and think mental health is literally like playing a game against an opponent and you win and you move on. But it's it's not it's not a black and white win and move on. It'll never come back thing again. Because when I got involved with THO in the the spring of 2020, when COVID had just kind of started, I thought, oh, it would be really neat to be involved in this organization. Like I I went through past tense mental health issues before, and I want to help people who are going through them now. And it took me four months to be able to realize, wait, yeah, I went through it in high school. Now I realize I went through it in college. And I'm still going through it now. And there are good days. There are bad days. There are in-between days. And there there are times where I feel great. And I don't think I have depression and anxiety anymore. And there are days where I'm just like, dang, I can't get out of bed. Like, it's it's not my day. I'm I'm not me. And so once I realized it's not this linear, I won, you're done, then that gave me so much more perspective to think, okay, I need to really prioritize myself constantly, not just when I'm in a crisis. I need, it's like the same thing in an athletic training room. You need to do preventative stuff before you get hurt to minimize the risk of getting hurt. So I need to exercise self-care before I'm in a crisis or before I'm in a dark place so that maybe I minimize the amount of time I'm in that dark place or I know how to get out of it. 
and I know what my coping skills are and what my self-care mechanisms are that work. For me, that was a big thing with mental health. And it probably took a long time to figure that out for you then. Yeah, I'm 23 now, and I think I was a freshman when I was 14. So it took eight, nine years to figure it out. And I mean, hey, I'm still figuring it out. Yeah, I hope I'm not triggering anything. But do you know what led to the suicidal thoughts your freshman year of high school? Yeah, I know that I was discovering a lot about my family and about kind of just life in general that I think I was getting to that age where like, you know, when you're younger and your parents try and protect you from things and don't tell you things. I got to, you know, freshman year and I started learning more about kind of family relationships and things that I didn't really know. And I was starting to get into the the kind of nitty gritty of recruiting. And so I was, I defined myself as a pitcher. So if I didn't perform well, then that would trigger depression for me. And there were some days where it would just come and go. Um, my anxiety was really bad. Like I had classes in high school that I was so anxious. This is how we actually identified it. I was so anxious to go to these classes that I would fake being sick at home so that I wouldn't have to go to school. And one week I did it three times and my parents were like, okay, something's going on. And this is more than just being sick. And it wasn't even like a, I think people stigmatize suicidal thoughts and think, oh, I don't want to be here anymore. Like dark, deep thoughts where I was just like, I'm tired. I don't want to do this. I'm done. And it wasn't, you know, those dark thoughts. It was just, I'm exhausted. I want to give up. And I realized that it was because I was putting so much pressure on myself. But at the same time, like there are external factors that influence mental health, but it's also a chemical imbalance. And sometimes there doesn't have to be a reason. And I think a lot of people think like they saw me in my college career and said, oh, well, you're successful on the field. You don't have a reason to be depressed. You don't have a reason to be anxious. I don't need a reason. It's how my body is. It's how the chemicals in my brain are. And some days are better than others. And that's okay. There doesn't have to be a reason. All that matters is that I can take care of myself and get out of it. Yeah. And I want to say too, success is defined differently by everyone. Like everybody has their own definition. Your definition of success at that time might've been to have as many good days as I can and to minimize the bad days. Yeah. But to other people, success is three-time all-conference. Yeah. And this is where I think other outside opinions can affect anyone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I see, you know, parents or coaches have these very high expectations of their athlete and maybe add a little bit of pressure to their athlete, whether they, you know, if they if they don't have a good game, they literally don't talk to their athlete or they yell like yeah. the athlete is the problem. When in reality, everybody has good days and everybody has bad days and they just need support at that point. Yeah. Those outside versions of success can a lot of times dictate whether the athlete feels like a success or failure. Like, I can't can't tell you how many times um, people have shared with me, parents are only nice to them when they play well. Therefore, when they don't play well, they feel like a failure. Yeah. And that's hard. Like, it's hard because... I probably went through something similar myself and most athletes kind of do depending on whether it's coming from a parent or a coach. Like I've had a lot of great coaches in my career and I've had a lot of coaches that weren't good, like point blank period. 
And now that I look back on it, which is what we're doing, we're reflecting a lot today, is a lot of it had to do with, well, when I had a good game, my dad or my coach was happy. And when I, when I had a bad game, it looked like they're sad. So, and I'm the cause of that. Mm -hmm. I made him happy. I made him sad instead of no, you're in control and you need to know that it's okay to feel upset after a loss, but it doesn't define you. Yeah. It's okay to strike out. That's literally how you learn how to grow, but that doesn't define you. Yeah. Have you heard like the whole slump theory where there is no such thing as a, a slump? It's something like that we create in our minds. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true because, I mean, there's like that classic, I think, Yogi Berra quote that says the game is 90% mental and 10% physical. If you have an 0 for 3 game and success in our sport is so crazy because it can be an inch on a bad angle. Yeah. Or it can be like a millisecond of timing. So to me, and it took me a long time to be able to say, like I used to, I remember in college, I used to call my mom after practices or I would go home after practices. And if I had a bad practice, I was like, I had a bad day. I failed today, period, point blank, end of sentence. That's it. And it took so long for me to be able to be like, all right, you know what? I had a not great practice. I'm going to give myself 15 minutes to stew in my car and be annoyed about it, but it's not the end of the world. After these 15 minutes, maybe I'm going to go play a board game with my roommates or go out to dinner with some of my teammates. And are they going to be pissed at me when I go out to dinner? No, they're going to be fine. So, and even if like I did something and we were doing a pressure defense thing and I made an error and we had to run, like they weren't going to stay mad at me for three days. So why was I doing that to myself? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think our game has such a small margin for error that there can still be growth in those errors. And with a growth mindset, you are getting better. But if you have that black or white failure success mentality, then yeah, you will see it as failure. And if you stew on that failure, it's going to keep compiling and compiling and you're going to get to a point where you get in the box and you're like, I can't hit this. is Nope. It's not happening today. And as soon as you do that, then you're in that quote unquote slump. Do you think the pressures of softball and that literal minimal room for error that we have was a reason why you had a lot of anxiety in or outside of the game? In the game, for sure, because I came in as a perfectionist. And even if I was throwing a bullpen and there were consequences if we missed a spot, if the pitch wasn't exactly where I said I wanted it to be, I was running by myself and I would come back and my catchers and my, my pitching coach would be like, that was a good pitch. What are you doing? And I was like, well, it wasn't good enough. And that carried me through my entire career. And it was always, okay, this wasn't good enough. And when I got to those points where I was throwing really well, my junior year, and if we lost a one, nothing game, then some days I'd say to myself, I wasn't good enough. I let in a run. And so it became toxic. And that like, For a period of time, yeah, it'll stay on the field. But if that mentality leaks into other things that you're doing, then it'll come off the field. Like if I got something on a paper and I I thought I did really well on a paper and I I got a B plus, then I was like, well, that's not good enough. Took me until my senior year having an hour-long conversation with one of my pitching coaches after a bullpen that I was so frustrated with myself because I was not performing to my 
perfect standards that were unattainable, I broke down crying, had to leave practice because I was so emotional and so mad at myself. And she talked to me for an hour after practice and was like, perfectionism is not a good thing. In small doses, it's fine. But if you live a lifestyle of perfectionism, that's not healthy. That's toxic. And it's going to ruin you. And it took me until I was 21, 22 for somebody to say that to me. Wow. Wow. And you probably needed to hear that your freshman year of high school. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. What are other signs that maybe parents or coaches can look for that maybe you look back on now and you're like, I wish somebody would have talked to me about this or, yeah. or you just see athletes now that you maybe work with or, or know where you can almost like see that there is an issue there that needs to be taught or at least a space for them to talk about it. I think the easiest way for me to identify them is to look back at how I was. So I think I was a pretty outgoing person. If I was having a good day, I was joking around with people at practice. If I was having a bad day, I didn't speak to anyone at practice. I did not smile. I was all business. Um, and if I made a mistake, that was a very telling point of where I was mentally that day. So if I bobbled a ball, if I was like, all right, I got the next one, like, give me another one. I was fine. If I bobbled the ball and I immediately got pissed off and started getting down on myself, that was a teller for where I was mentally off the field that day. Um, I think if I wasn't hanging out with the team, if I wasn't going out of my way to go out to, I mean, I'm an ambivert, so I'm a little bit of introvert extrovert. Um, but if it was days on end that I was just in my apartment, not talking to people, not going out, that was kind of a, a flag for me. I think the perfectionism seeps back into play for me too. Like if I was only going to softball, going to class, going to study, and that's it, then that was another flag for me that I was in an unhealthy pattern. And then I think other things for me that would be universal for, you know, other people. And it's, it's different for everyone, but, um, I usually talk to my coach. I had a, a very good relationship with my coach. And so if I kind of avoided her or avoided friends on the team and didn't really engage with them, um, that was a, another flag for me. My coach actually had meetings every month with us and they were called birthday meetings because they were supposed to be around when our birthday was. Hmm. But, um, some days we'd go over, personal goals for the season, but a lot of it was just, how are you doing? How are, are you stressed? Are you anxious? Why do you think you're anxious? Do you need me to call counseling services? Do you need to get in with them just to like figure things out? Do you need to talk to somebody who's really good at time management? Do you need me to talk to a professor and say that you need an extension? How can I help you manage the stress that is being a college athlete and having for me, if I was in a good space, I would be open with her and I'd say, I'm really stressed. Like, I don't know how I'm going to finish this stuff. I need help time managing. I, and I would, I would talk to her, but if I was mm -hmm. in not a good place, I'd be like, I'm fine. I'm good. Did your coach know that, that you were not in a good place? She, yeah, I was very, very honest with her when I came in and said, look, I deal with mental health issues. I deal with depression and anxiety. I, I need support and I don't know where to get it because this is a new environment. Mm -hmm. And she got me connected with counseling services. There was actually an ex-college field hockey player who was a counselor in the office. So it was perfect because she understood yeah. all of the stress and all of 
the lifestyle. Um, so she was, she knew, and there were days like, there were really hard days my junior year when, um, someone close to me lost his mom. And I was, I drove down to the hospital and saw her and it was very sudden. And that was the last time I saw her and I had to be there for him through that. But, um, Mm -hmm. I went into her office the day after and she, I think this is the biggest thing that I feel like parents can take away too, is she just said, let me know how I can help. If you want to talk, you can talk and I'll be here to listen. Do you want me to listen or do you want me to voice opinions? Do you want to hear what I have to say or do you want to vent? Or do you want me to go get you food? Like, do you want to just stay in my office for a while and just cry it out? Or what can I do and what will help you most? And so like, those are conversations that I've had with teammates. And I've said, all right, when you're down, like, what do you want from me? How can I help you get out of a slump? So if it was me and my best friend, when she would play next to me, if I made an error, if I slipped a pitch, she'd come over to me and kind of just bring me down. And she knew that, there were only certain people who I would respond to if they came over to me. Some people I dismiss, some people I would listen to if they invested in me. And those certain people knew when to come over and what to say because they asked me and they said, what do you want from me? How can I help? So I think having those conversations before a crisis or before that down kind of emotion sets in is really important because most likely your kids will be honest and open with you and say, okay, yeah, if I have a bad game, like, I don't really like to talk about it. Just give me 15 minutes to kind of stew on it. And then maybe we can talk about it. Or like I had some friends who after tournaments, they would get in their car and their parents would say, do you want to talk about it? Or do you just want to like, be cool. And they would give their kids an option. Like, yes, I want to talk about it. And they start the conversation or no, I don't want to talk about it today. So giving them the freedom to have that control over yes, I want to let go of this emotion or no, I just want to kind of figure it out on my own. And it's okay to figure it out on your own because that'll give you answers to figure it out on your own the rest of your life. But I think that's a big thing that I've, I've learned and I've seen over the past couple of years is just giving them the freedom to decide what they want to do with their emotions. I love that idea of just giving them an environment that they feel comfortable to talk if they want or not. That's yeah. really, really awesome. And you said that was your the psychologist, the lacrosse player? Um, she was a field hockey. She oh, was a field, field hockey. hockey one. But I actually yeah. got introduced to that by um, a sports psychologist that I've worked with. That's amazing. Now, okay, so I think that's something we all can learn from. Your athlete at least just needs one person in my, like, just that one person to be able to build that environment. For some people, it's a certain parent. For some people, it's a specific coach. For some people, it might be a teammate. I mean, I feel like the more people that you can have in your bubble, the better in case mm-hmm. somebody's not around. But like if your athlete just needs a space to talk, like I've learned in lessons, there has been one lesson that I had. I normally do hitting lessons in like 30 minutes. There was one lesson for 20 minutes. We literally just had, we were just talking because, because maybe she didn't have that space to be able to talk with her parents or, you know, a friend. And I felt like that was a million times better than any sort of hitting lesson we could have gone and done because she was able to release emotions that she didn't, she held inside because she didn't feel like she could talk about. Yeah. Um, so I think that's massive and wow. Now you get to be a college coach and be able to hopefully provide that environment for all of your athletes. 
Yeah, that's, that's like so one of my cool. biggest whys. And I think an important yeah. thing with that too is if you have that person or those couple people, like I had those people my freshman year, but I relied on them in an unhealthy amount of kind of emotions that I was giving off where if I didn't know what to do or if I wanted that support, I would immediately go to that person instead of trying to figure it out myself and kind of grapple with it myself. So they were my first lifeline instead of me trying to figure it out where, and I think that's okay to an extent at the beginning, but when you have that kind of person that you can go to, and maybe it's a mentor, coach, parent, whoever, and you have that person that's willing to listen, I think you need to be able to listen to yourself too and learn what's best for you so that, again, if they're not around, then you can be able to say, okay, this is what I need for myself. And I know this is how I get and start to learn more about yourself and yeah. realize how you can help yourself. Mm-hmm. I always say the more you understand yourself, the better hitter you'll be. Yeah. Better athlete, better sibling, daughter. I, I truly believe that to my core. So that's that's really awesome. So you said this thing on Instagram. It's a quote from you that I really oh boy. was floored by. And I, I really internally just read it and was just like, I need to share this on the podcast because it's, you've been through a lot and you've learned a lot about yourself. You've learned a lot about um, your own emotions. And I think it's really something cool. So I, I want to share this quote and then you probably hate that I'm reading something that you've written, but here we are. So the quote said, the biggest thing I've learned, allow yourself to feel your emotions and your feelings and then find the resources and skills that work best for you to work through it. That in itself, we could go a million ways with this, but when it comes to feeling your emotions, what is that? How do you feel your emotions? Because feeling is something that's not tangible. How do you feel your emotions? I think if you don't want to use the word feeling, then it's recognizing and labeling. Maybe not labeling, but if you label, understand that your emotion is not you. So if I'm sad, that doesn't mean that all I am is sad and I'm a sad person. Or if I'm angry, it doesn't mean that I'm an angry person all the time. So I I think it's called um, radical acceptance of emotions is what I've heard it called. And it's been a huge thing for me over the past couple of of years, especially with COVID and how that kind of ended my career. A lot of it for me was at the beginning, I heard people saying, okay, well, yeah, you ended like your career, you stopped playing softball, but like people are dying. And so it got really hard for me to, I felt guilty feeling all of these emotions from my experience. And then I realized, you know what? Everybody has their own experiences. Everyone deals with emotions differently. I never want anyone to feel guilty around me for feeling an emotion. And I, it's a classic thing in sports that we put off our emotions, that emotions are vulnerability and weakness. Mm-hmm. And so for 22 years, I had no idea how to actually identify my emotions and face them head on. I would wait and I would let them stew and stew and stew until I had a breaking point and would break down, like have a huge breakdown. And my sports psychologist actually said to me, yeah, that's like a big athlete thing. You need to you need to pay attention to kind of your cues and your triggers to when that's coming and then take a step back and say, all right, if these are my emotions right now and these emotions typically lead to me breaking down, how can I stop this before it hits that peak point? And why am I feeling this way? What can I do to to make that feeling go away? And a big thing for me has been like labeling my emotions and going one emotion deeper. 
So if I'm angry, what type of anger is it? Am I frustrated about something? Am I disappointed in something? So there's always like one layer deeper that I've found. Um, she actually gave me a pinwheel that shows you have like the general emotions and then it goes deeper. So it was big for me, especially with anxiety. It was like, okay, I'm anxious. Okay. But like, what kind of anxious? Am I unsettled? Am I nervous? Am I, you know, like be more specific so that you can understand yourself better and then combat that emotion. But yeah, I think like the know biggest, where it's coming from. Yeah. Okay. And the I biggest like thing for that quote for me was emotion isn't a bad thing. And I think athletes see it, like I said, as weakness and vulnerability. And, you know, we're always told like no crying in softball and you can't be emotional and you can't cry on the field and whatever mental toughness. That's the big word and phrase that I was fed through my career, but I look back and I'm like, okay, mental toughness doesn't mean we're not feeling our emotions. It means that I'm resilient and I can bounce back from adversity, but that doesn't mean that the adversity isn't hard. That doesn't mean we don't go through hard things and we don't get emotional and we don't cry because that's even worse than like, that's the toxic part of mental toughness that I think has kind of fed its way through athletics where you don't feel your emotions and you're just a robot that does sport and that's all. And you don't feel anything and you're not allowed to talk about it. Well, if we talk about it and we combat it and we get through it, then we're not going to have an explosion when it bottles up. Great point. Great point. It's, it's so interesting how like literally the answer is just to keep asking questions. Yeah. I laugh because half the time I, I sound like Olaf in Frozen. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why? <laughs> but truly it sounds like that's the thing. Like if you are feeling angry, go deeper. Why? Yeah. What is triggering that? Maybe you're angry because you saw something on Twitter and it really brushed you the wrong way. Well, limit your time on Twitter. Like that yeah. could itself be the answer. So inside this quote, you also talked about knowing or finding resources and skills to help you. You work for THO, the hidden mm -hmm. opponent. I am a huge fan. So my youngest sister plays volleyball, Old Dominion. And so she knows Victoria Garrick and she has followed her forever. She's like, Ashley, a lot of things that you do is just like Victoria Garrick. <laughs> so I started, you know, doing what most people do, stalking. Like, what is this? Like, I want to know more. And that's how I came across you with The Hidden Opponent. Can you share with us what The Hidden Opponent is, how it's helping athletes through their mental health struggle, um, but also being a resource for athletes and how can people learn more about it? Yeah. So, um, THO is a nonprofit, the hidden opponent. Um, Victoria founded it in, I think 2019, October, 2019. Um, a great place to start learning about it is her Ted talk. You can find it on YouTube. It's phenomenal. I watched it and I was like, wait, these feelings are normal as an yeah. athlete. Like, yeah. You can feel overwhelmed with that schedule. She, a big part of that TED talk for me was she goes through her entire schedule as a division one volleyball player and just looking at it stressed me out. And then I realized, yeah. wait, okay. Yeah. Division three, like I'm still busy. Mm -hmm. So it was a really good starting point to kind of learn the mission behind THO. Um, we've grown a lot in the past two years and we've been blessed to have some really great people with us. So I think the biggest thing for athletes in terms of resources is we have a student athlete Facebook group where you can post if you had a bad day at practice and you don't know how to get back from it, people who have been there can help you. Or if you have issues with a coach and you don't know how to approach it, people who've been there can help you. 
And it's also a place where we put with our partners, if we have webinars or we're hosting events or sharing resources or anything like that, we'll post it in there so that our athletes can have access to it. And we also post to our Instagram. We post videos to YouTube. So there's tons of stuff that we share throughout all of our social media. And we're actually now starting to um, do a coaches and professionals Facebook group. And we're trying to approach it from that side of, we asked athletes and it was pretty recent that we did this. What do you wish your coaches knew about mental health? Mm. And some of the responses. So it's me and a couple other team members who are kind of heading this coaches group. And some of the responses we got, I was like, oh my gosh. Like imagine if we not only educate athletes, but make those safe spaces that we want and educate coaches on how much mental health can benefit the athlete wholly so that they can perform on the field and be at their best. I'm so curious. What are some of those things? Can you share them? That athletes wish that their coach or parent could hear. Some of them were saying like, we're not always going to be on at practice and that's okay. Or some days I need a mental health day from practice. And some days it's more beneficial for me to take a day for me than show up to practice and have a crappy practice and have it spiral. Some of the other ones off the top of my head were, um, I mean, it was posted on Instagram. and Yeah, I remember seeing this post and I think I may have reposted it. But I think, I wow, how cool is it to have a community of this? So one was just because coaches can't see mental illness doesn't mean that it can't physically injure us. Wow. That it isn't a weakness. It's different every day. Only I know how far I can be pushed. Mental illness isn't a choice. How much power a coach has to positively or negatively impact mental health. Sometimes taking a personal day off from practice is the best way to contribute to the team. That sometimes I can't perform to my full potential because of my mental health. And sometimes leaving it in the locker room isn't possible. Those wow. were only some of the ones that we got back. Those are big. Yeah. Wow. I hope parents and coaches listening can at least know that that's something that a lot of athletes are thinking. That's why that post is basically viral because every athlete's felt at least one of those. Yeah. That's huge. So what's the Instagram page? Um, At the hidden opponent. And then how, how else can we find you? You said the website. Yeah. So the website is the hidden opponent.com and you can always email. It's me and a couple others on the inbox. um, The hidden opponent at gmail.com. So we're getting, you know, high school athletes and college athletes involved in our campus captains program, which is um, we're trying to get as many mental health ambassadors for our organization on as many campuses as possible. So right now we have, I think, over 400, I want to say, on college campuses and high schools across the country. And it's giving them a touch point to be able to start conversations with SAC and start conversations with their administrators saying, hey, like, would you think about maybe getting a sports psych or maybe getting this for us. This is what we need. How can you help us? And, you know, I mean, Victoria does talks with college um, athletic departments and we've started doing more. We've done talks with conferences, entire conferences doing mental health webinars and stuff. So we just want to get that conversation started on all levels so that each tier of, you know, athletic administrator, coach, athlete, athletic trainer can think more about okay, how can I positively impact our athletes or what can I do to help and what can I do to, you know, keep this going and keep this conversation going? How can I Mm -hmm. change the stigma? And that's our, that's our mission is changing the stigma around mental health and athletics and, and breaking that 
stigma and having conversations, educating, giving resources, um, building community where people feel comfortable and safe talking about their mental health and at the same time being there for them through that. Yeah. I just saw Victoria just spoke with Athletes Unlimited softball. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was amazing because I actually talked to some of the players that are my friends and I was like, how was that? Because I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in the room. And many of them were saying, wow, I didn't I didn't know myself as well before this conversation. And I started asking myself like questions I've never asked myself after this. And I'm just like, whoa, that's so cool. But yes, go to the Hidden Opponents website. I will have everything, even Victoria Garrick's TED Talk. I'll have that all in the show notes for people to go check it out. And especially that Facebook group. How cool is it to have a community that's able to just talk and have a space to be able to do so? You guys are doing incredible work. Um, lastly, how can people follow you? Mary, like you, people are probably so in such an awe of your story and your positivity and just vulnerability on this conversation. How can they follow you? Um, my personal Instagram is at Mary Pat Murray. And then I think that's my handle on like everything else. So yeah, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes too. So people can follow you if you're okay with it. I'd love (laughs) to ask you five final rapid fire questions. I like to call this segment five to thrive. Okay. You ready to rock? Okay, cool. All right. First question I have for you is what's the greatest lesson that your parents taught you growing up? Oh my gosh. These are hard <laughs> questions. Um, I, I would just say resilience in one word. Um, my mom battled breast cancer and seeing her go through that mm-hmm. entire journey and seeing her just fight has been something huge for me. So no matter how many times life knocks you down, getting up one more time. Wow. That's beautiful. What's your favorite softball memory? You may have already shared it. Playing, I think it was playing in Canada Cup. Mm. Yeah, just the experience of playing with all those incredible athletes. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I know the feeling when I was playing pro, and I'm just like, yeah, that's that's Kat Osterman right there. <laughs> she's, on, <laughs> she's on the mound. Same thing with, like, Lauren Chamberlain. Yep, she's yeah. playing first. Yep, this is real life. Here we are. Pinch me. That's cool. Um, who was your biggest role model growing up and why? I feel like I didn't really, I modeled role models more after people around me in my personal life. Like if you'd asked me, like, I remember in college, they asked, who's your favorite athlete? And I was like, I don't know. I know that like my mom is a role model to me and my dad is a role model to me. And, um, I think one of the biggest role models a lot of coaches have been role models to me and even friends like Pierce have been role models to me because that allows me to be part of their journey in real time and see how they navigate things. And, mm-hmm. you know, like my best friend is a role model to me, seeing how she, she navigates things and seeing how open she is about her journey and how vulnerable she is and how that translates into her strength. Um, so I think for me, like biggest role model would, it may sound cliche, but like my parents, coaches, um, mentors, stuff like that. I love that answer. What's your favorite part about softball? I think three, two or three years out of playing now, I can say seeing all of the skills and the lessons that I learned, not even like how to field a ground ball, just how to get over adversity, how to push back all of those intangible skills, seeing them translate into life. And then as a coach, being able to share those skills and have those teaching moments that I was taught years ago and be able to have that impact that coaches had on me. I think that's my favorite part. Your answers are so good. 
I love it. Okay. Before I ask the final question, I just want to thank you, Mary. This was such a fun conversation. Um, a hard conversation, I'm sure in a lot of ways for you, but so grateful that you, that you shared, um, your, your entire story of resilience, because I think you, it's, it's very clear that you've done a lot of research on yourself. Like, you know, yourself so well, and you have come out of this. I don't even say come out of it. Like you are still learning and growing and just keeping mental health as a main priority in your life, which I think is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And your athletes are so lucky to have you. The hidden opponent is so lucky to have you. And we're lucky to have you on the show. Thank you. Awesome. Okay. Well, final question is what advice would you give your younger self? Let's say freshman yourself of high school. Freshman year high school. Let's say her. I think freshman year high school. I would have told myself, stop trying to control everything. Stop trying to dictate how your life is going to go. Stop trying to have your life together at the age of 14 because you won't. I don't have it together at the age of 23. I may not have it together at the age of 30. Stop trying to make sure that everything fits in the box that you want it to fit in because that may not be where your happiness is. And that's something I've learned is I... I talked to my sports psych and we did um, kind of like a, a personality. It was, it's called your human roadmap. And that opened my eyes about myself. And I've always been, my anxiety, I think has fueled me to control things. And so that it limits it. And she said to me, no, you're like the way that you're you is you're supposed to just take opportunities that come to you and just go with the flow. And I was like, what? me before I went to Australia I was like I need to have this done and like I was anal about everything then I went to Australia and I was in that culture and they were just kind of like yeah I mean if we miss the bus we miss the bus whatever we'll just go on the beach so it was like I had to learn to to be in that culture and back off but um my strength coach actually gave me I have a mirror right over there and he gave me a quote that still sits on there that really really like pinpoints the whole control thing for me it says when you can't control what's happening challenge yourself to control the way you respond to what's happening that's where your power is and I've had that written on that mirror for four years wow that's huge that's huge oh wonderful answers thank you so much for coming on the show we were blessed to have you and maybe we'll have you on again in the future diving deeper This was so fun. We'll talk soon. Holy smokes. What a conversation. I am in awe of Mary. I am in awe of her resilience. I am in awe of her passion to help athletes now that struggle with the stuff that she struggled with. It's just unreal to know what she has gone through, but also what athletes around this world are going through. And I hope that through this conversation, you have a better understanding of what goes on in the minds of a youth athlete. So I want to give you a few, actually four takeaways from today that really stood out to me. The first thing is how giving athletes a safe space to talk about their emotions without being criticized is crucial. Giving an athlete space to release some of the feelings or emotions that she is literally holding on inside of her, that is a huge sense of relief. And the fact that Mary brought that up is incredible. So 
My takeaway is I'm gonna try to give a little bit more of a space for athletes, like within my hitting sessions or virtual sessions, like I'm gonna try to give them a little bit more. And, and as parents and coaches, you know them. You know when they're off. You know when your athlete is struggling. So don't be afraid to reach out to her or him and really just say, hey, what's going on? You're not yourself. You can talk about this with me. I won't share it with mom and dad or I won't. It, like this could just be our space. Just tell me what you think. And you know, if, if they do say that they're depressed and, and you are concerned, yes, you need to you need to tell their parent, but at least give them that place that they feel comfortable talking about their emotions because sometimes it's worse than we think it is. The second thing is when she talked about how she's a three-time all-conference player, she saw the epitome of success in college. And she said a lot of people went up to her and said, you shouldn't be struggling. You're successful. You're not, you're not struggling internally. You're really successful. No, she was struggling and she was able to be successful. So again, it's sometimes hard to see. The third thing to take away is, man, just the advice that she would tell her freshman year self in high school. She told me after we recorded that that was the first time she's publicly said that she had suicidal thoughts her freshman year of high school and nobody knew. And the reflection she's put into herself after she's played is probably some of the most, the biggest takeaways that, that I truly took from today. And then the last thing is that she said, just the biggest thing that she's learned is to how to feel your emotions. I love when she talked about how she felt her emotions and the importance of finding resources or skills that work best for you to work through it. One of those resources is the hidden opponent, the company that she's working for now, the, the nonprofit that Victoria Garrick started. So what I did is in the show notes, you can find where to find the hidden opponent, uh, where to find that Ted talk that she mentioned of Victoria Garrick talking about um, eliminating the stigma of mental health and really just embracing it. I want to be able to provide at, and be with this podcast, be able to provide you with some of the tools that you may need, um, you know, either now or in the future. Uh, if you come across athletes that, you know, maybe are going through some of the stuff that Mary talked about today. So man, those were my biggest takeaways from today. Go ahead, check out the show notes. I even put um, her walk-up song, Home by Machine Gun Kelly, in the show notes as well. And I just listened to it and it pumped me up. So I really hope you got a lot out of this interview. And this is just the start of many beautiful stories and just people in the game of softball that are truly making a big impact in this game. And I'm excited to get more guests like Mary on the show uh, to share their journeys through the game. Also, what you can find in the show notes are other episodes similar to this. So if you dove deep into this one and enjoyed it a ton, go ahead to the show notes as well to find similar episodes to this one. All right, friends, thanks for hanging out with us this week. I'm excited for you to see who's going to be on the podcast next week. And it's a, it's a topic we've never talked about before. So we're going to have a blast with one of my great friends in the game. And I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it and tell you who it is. You're just going to have to pop back in same time, same place next week. Stay humble, keep working hard and be kind people. Share a smile. See you later.